Children are often fascinated with technology, and Sahil Avigia's story isn't any different. He first started getting into computers at about 12, playing around with graphic design tools like Photoshop, and it soon naturally developed into building websites for family and friends. One computer science and engineering degree later, Sahil turned what started as a casual project for himself into a marketplace for others like him to get paid doing what they were good at. Gumroad went from being a weekend project to a sustainable business that became a staple of the gig economy. But the road wasn't without its bumps. Now having published his book, The Minimalist Entrepreneur, Sahil is not only known for his transparency about his challenges as a founder, but also for talking about the alternative path for founders that aren't looking to build a VC-backed unicorn. In this episode, we talk about community-driven products and the art of problem-solving, shaping the future of work, and the delicate balance between profitability and scale. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. Running the leading startup community in Latin America costs money, but some people are taking notice. So I want to take a minute to thank our early supporters. At Viva Real, we were an early customer of Zendesk. Other companies like Nubank, Loft, RD Station, they all use Zendesk to keep their customers happy. Zendesk for Startups offers Zendesk software for customer service and sales for free for six months. To learn more, head to zendesk.com slash startups. Also, we're really happy to inform that Latitude Fellows now have access to a ton of extra exclusive benefits on top of the six months free, thanks to Zendesk's support of our community. Go to latitude.com to learn more about the Latitude Fellowship and apply. I learned the hard way that lo barato sale caro. If I had worked with Gunderson from the beginning, maybe our company wouldn't have had to pay $100 million in unnecessary taxes because of our corporate structure. We're lucky to have their support along with Kerry Olson and Bronstein Zilberberg in developing one of our first products, Latitude Go. We want the process of incorporating companies in Latin America to be 10 times cheaper and twice as fast. If you're starting a venture-backed company, you can check it out at go.latitude.com. I've been banking with Silicon Valley Bank for over a decade as one of their first customers in Latin America. They're committed to the region and have made great introductions over the years. We want to thank them for their support of Latitude. To learn more, visit svb.com. Now on to the episode. Thank you for making the time. You are one of the people that I know that like is one of the most talented people that can manage like lots of stuff at once. So the fact that you're launching this book, you made time for the podcast, and, uh, and then also you got Gumroad and you, you got your investing. So thank you for uh, the hacks on how to be more efficient in that way. And uh, thank you for making the time for this chat. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Excited to do it. So let's start off with uh, the book and you, for the audience, we'll link it up in the podcast. But I think we connected last year on Clubhouse. That's where we kind of met and started chatting more. And then I started following you and been really impressed kind of how you operate, how you work. And you've got to develop this, you call it the minimalist entrepreneur and, you know, how great founders do more with less. And I think you epitomize that because you're, you know, you're able to operate really efficiently. And we were fortunate to have you as a guest speaker at our, our Angel Fellowship. And you talked a little bit more about how you manage that. But after reading the book, the idea that founders should strive to be capable of doing more with less, it struck a chord with me because, I mean, you know, frankly, who doesn't want to be more efficient? If you had to just pick one thing, what's the most important lesson to be learned from The Middleist Entrepreneur, your book? Oh, man, one lesson. 
That's a good one. I mean, I think uh, a reliance on process, I think, is really, really key. Process is kind of like the the first step of scaling yourself, right, in every kind of dimension, right? Like, it's kind of the in-between step between kind of doing something totally manually, one-off every single time, to like having a totally automated you know piece of software that does the whole thing for you. I think the middle step is like process, right? There's an amazing book on this called The Checklist Manifesto that I think every Square employee used to have to read. It's kind of one of Jack's kind of favorite books. The Score Takes Care of Itself is another great book about this um, by the guy who was a quarterback, or not quarterback, coach of the head coach of the 49ers while they were doing really well. But basically the premise being that like you want to establish kind of almost like pseudo code for the way that you run your life or different things in your life, right? Like the way that I run Gumroad is like, it's not automated completely, but it all, it feels like it is sometimes where I like sit down in front of my computer on Mondays and I just go, kind of go through my checklist, right? Um, and I use a set of tools, uh, like for example, you know, we're using Riverside, right? Which like automatically gets you like all this stuff for free. Like for example, if I do something, I did a podcast yesterday and we used Zoom, which meant that like they recorded on their side. I had quick time open on my side. Then I had to like save the thing. And then, you know, it's like a 300 megabyte file, then email them the file afterwards, right? All these sorts of steps. But with Riverside, it's kind of like all automated, you know? And I'm sure like it's going to get better and better and better over time. You're going to have clips that you can auto share and like all of these cool things you can edit, you know, on the fly. Um, there's going to be more and more of this functionality built in. And I think that's like kind of the, a big lesson of the minimalist entrepreneur is just Figma, Notion, Slack, Riverside, GitHub, like all of these tools are getting better and better and better. And if you rely on them, you're kind of almost making a bet in that these tools are going to improve and you're going to kind of be, we, we've talked a lot about investing in the past and AngelList, I think is a phenomenal example of this, right? Because like, imagine trying to raise a fund, a rolling fund or even a traditional fund outside of AngelList. Like I, I know, cause I you know, have friends who've done that and it's like incredibly time consuming people with like three or $4 million AUM, like have a part-time director of finance or CFO helping them out manage this stuff, right? It's like crazy. And AngelList, you kind of just say, hey, you you know, they, they kind of worry about that stuff for you and you can focus on what you're good at. And so I think finding that in every way as you scale your business, like finding the, that version for sales, for marketing, uh, for design with Figma, like just and building in these processes early, like just it, it removes the kind of almost the creativity, which I find is, kind of, you know, creativity is, is great, but it also kind of introduces like the paradox of choice, right? Which is like, instead of doing something, you just spend all your time thinking about like, well, what should we do, right? And I, I kind of like to think of myself as like two people, like the person who gets to be creative and decide the process, and then the person who just executes on the process, right? And like, I probably am only the creative person, like, you know, like at night, you know, and then like, I wake up and I just go through and I'm kind of just my own employee in a way, like I'm the boss and then I'm the employee. Uh, and I think that's really, really important uh, to kind of think that way. Um, and I've thought that way for for quite a while. So It's funny because we had this little session with you and we had 23 founders, mostly founders of large tech companies in Latin America, very successful. And you took us through kind of like how you receive emails from interested founders that are interested in you investing. And like, you got all this shorthand for like, <laughs> for email responding, responding to things. And you basically create all these kind of shortcuts for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And that was interesting to me to see because like that, that's probably just your intrinsic kind of product drive that you have where you're like able to identify things and then like put it together. 
But another thing you do besides that is that you have really kind of mastered this working in public thing, right? I mean, you, you're like the quintessential kind of work in public entrepreneur where you're, you're like everything you do, you write about it and you talk about it and the good and the bad and the lessons. Would love to hear more about some of those shortcuts and how they've been successful in your business, how you've shared them with other people and how has that impacted you in your journey? If you, if you think about an entrepreneur listening, that's like, should I be building in public? What's the downside to that? Because I've been thinking a lot about that personally and it's, I can't think of, I think it's more upside, but I just would like to hear from your perspective on how that came to be and like why you continue to do that and what's the benefit for you. Yeah, totally. So I, you know, when I started Gumroad, I wasn't that public, right? Like I think you, 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 when you, when you are in that sort of Silicon Valley, like you're raising money, you're hiring people, there is a tendency to kind of keep all the cards close to your chest, right? Uh, it's kind of a sales tactic, right? Like you kind of want them to lean in. And so you don't want to just give it all the secrets away, you know, right out the gate. Cause then they'll just say, Oh, cool. I got what I wanted Buy, Right. Uh, but when I, I sort of, you know, fast forward, like sort of five years when government didn't exactly work out the way that I intended. And I felt like, okay, this is like a nice business. I think we're maybe doing $2 million a year growing, you know, 30% or something like that. Um, you know, post layoffs, kind of we raised money and failed and all these sorts of things I've talked about. Then my my kind of attention became like, okay, well, I'm not trying to scale. I'm not trying to raise money. I'm not trying to hire like crazy. And so what, like, what kind of company do I want to run if I didn't care about growth? And the sort of dichotomy I used was kind of capturing value versus creating value. And I sort of became obsessed on, on almost around just creating value, which was like, okay, Gumroad didn't, create the sort of the billion dollar kind of impact, uh, you know, in the, in the world. Uh, but there, I still have a company. I still learned a lot. There's all these other ways I can sort of add value to the world. They may not lead to like additional revenue for the company, but that's fine. Like it does well enough to pay my bills and, uh, you know, I can, I can help the world out. And, and, you know, I'm sort of a big believer that that stuff like ends up paying itself back at some point in the future. Like you just have to kind of be patient um, and not expect anything. Otherwise, I think it kind of defeats the point almost. But I started I started publishing my financials. That was like the first thing I did. Well, and I did it actually when the Gumroad basically had a flat month because I was like, okay, cool. There's no downside to doing this. Like, I'm not going to set myself up for like, oh, this thing needs to grow fast. Like, I'm going to pick a month in which we're kind of flat. And so I, I think it was April of like 2018 or something like that um, where I started, uh, yeah, just like tweeting. You know, and, and actually the reason I did it, one of the, the sort of this this goes back to uh, you know automation and 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 thinking about processes. One of the things I had to do was every month I would email you know a couple of my investors that were still on the cap table had information rights right, which meant you know for people who may not know like basically you just have to email them like you know overall kind of like fundamentals about the business. Um, they're kind of entitled to that as being investors in the company, and and I, I was doing that every month right. I would kind of do some SQL and then I would kind of email them, and it would take like ten minutes or twenty minutes or something like that. And I just felt like this is one of the few things I have not automated yet. And what if I just tweeted it instead? Like then I don't have to email them once a month. Uh, And so I kind of did that the first time around. And it didn't really, you know, it was like people were like, oh, this is interesting and cool. Um, It, you know, I gained a few hundred followers or something like that. Um, But it was, you know, it wasn't a big deal. and I just kept doing it. And then Gumroad started growing faster and faster and faster. And then COVID hit and we kept doing it. And that, I think, made it much more compelling to people because all of a sudden they're seeing this business grow kind of almost in real time in front of them. 
in a way that was almost like dictated by the market, not like I was doing something that was like driving this, which is kind of a key lesson that I, that I had. And so that started it. Uh, and then when I started talking to friends about this sort of history of Gumroad, sort of a lot of people were like, oh, I didn't know Gumroad was still around. Like everyone had their own story about what had happened because I never had really written about this in public before myself. And so I wrote an article about kind of the last eight years of Gumroad titled Reflecting on My Failure to Build a Billion Dollar Company. And that was kind of like my real big expose on like everything that that happened. And that really showed me the value of building in public, which is basically like you can build relationships with many, many people at the same time, right? Instead of like, man, it's basically like having a conversation with someone, except you can have thousands of them and it's up to them to have them, right? They just find the article. Like every day people find that article, read the article. I get an email saying, oh, that was really cool. And I think that's actually a really key part of that processization piece, right? Like one way I automate myself in a way is that I just do these things in public, right? Because then I don't have to have the same conversation like 50 times. I can just have it once. And anytime someone asks me about the same question, I can just say, hey, go, you know, here's the URL. Go watch the video or go read the blog post or go read the book. And then come back to me with any follow-up questions you have and we'll have like kind of a better conversation about it. And so I'm just, yeah, I think those those two ideas work really well. In terms of downsides, um, I mean, I don't, I don't think there are a lot of downsides. I think there's a lot of fear that like, oh, you know, your competitors will copy you or something like that. Uh, I don't think that really exists. Um, you know, if that's what's going to lead for, to you not, your business not working, like you're kind of screwed anyway, I think. Like you have to be so far ahead of the curve to be a startup that succeeds, like worrying about copycats, like copycats will always be behind you, right? Inherently, right? So, and obviously all public companies are public, right? They report the, their financials every three three months. So it seems to work out okay for them as well. Um, I would say the biggest concern I have is that you, people should do it because they really want to teach the world something. Like I think creating value is a really good framework. Like I think there's a tendency for people to say, oh, I want to like do this so I can build my Twitter audience or so I can sell my product or so I can, I don't know, to like sort of placate my ego or something like that, which is fine. But I think when I, when I see the, the the stuff that really, really works, you you almost have to be selfless about it. You just have to say, here it is. And if you choose, you can go research my product and sign up and pay for it and all these sorts of things. But I think you kind of want to play the long game on a lot of these things if you're building in public. Like I have this rolling fund and I think the rolling fund exists at the scale that it does because I spent years just building an audience, kind of giving away everything I had learned. And I had no idea. I remember people would ask me, like, why are you tweeting so much? Like, why do you want a ton of Twitter followers? And I was like, literally, like, I have no idea. Uh, I assume at some point they will be useful, right? Uh, I don't think there was a downside to doing this. And then a year or two into it, you know, I get an email from Naval being like, hey, we have this new Rolling Funds product. It would be, you know, basically great for someone like you where you have this big audience. You've kind of trained them in this way. You have the sort of credibility of being a founder. Um, and I was like, boom, perfect, right? And I was able to kind of go from zero to 100, at least in the public eye, I was able to kind of react to it. But the reason is because I had spent sort of like multiple years almost like kind of training for that kind of marathon that I didn't even know about that was going to happen, right? Which I think is kind of generally important. Like you always want to be kind of getting better, at, you know, in whatever ways you can, because you never know what opportunity is going to show up tomorrow that requires like, an audience or distribution or, or capital or whatever it may be. So I think that just a key point there, like that whole kind of exposing your experiences and sharing with everybody, it comes from an intrinsic interest in, in teaching, right? That's kind of your, and then it, it manifests itself 
by you sharing your knowledge and experience, mistakes, all those things. And then people, it resonates with people. They learn things, they get to know you better and they ultimately are closer to you. And then you, you know, it's kind of like accelerates 10 conversations you would have with them. And so now they kind of know you and then they want to back you, whether it's become a customer or invest in your rolling fund. So is that kind of a, a good summary then? Yeah, no, I think I think that's a great summary. Almost like you have to like pre-sell them, right? So like for example, like there are certain people that if they like had a book, you know, come out, I would buy it immediately, right? I wouldn't even really care what the book is about. Uh, I just follow them. I like what they have to say. I th- I'm interested in the way that they think. It's kind of a no-brainer, and that's kind of I think how you want to get you know you want to think about this too. Is like if you launch a fund, you know, for example, I get questions from founders that are like, hey, I'm thinking about doing a crowdfunding round. Uh, and you know, I want to do this. I want to let my customers on the cap table and all of these amazing things. And I think crowdfunding is great. The question I always ask them is like, you know, if you do this right now, like how much demand do you have? Right? Like how many people are interested in doing this? And many people are like, I don't know. I don't have customers, you know? And it's like, well, that stuff is a lot harder, right? Like the, the crowdfunding is kind of like the last step, right? Not the first step, right? Um, raising money for your startup, it shouldn't be something you do like from a cold start, I think that's really, really, really hard. You kind of want to have people who who know you and respect you and want to give you money, and then it's a lot easier to kind of get everyone else. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's a good kind of good rule of thumb. I'm gonna read a quote from your book. I think it's fitting based on what you just said, and it's I think it's my favorite quote from your book. It, it's the community that leads you to the problem, which leads you to the product, which leads you to your business. I think that's just genius because you build the community first. You kind of just like listen to the community, right? And you understand you have your finger on the pulse of the community. And then you you seize opportunity from there because you're understanding the needs of people. Talk a little bit more about how you've kind of leveraged that strategy in, in building Gumroad and building the fund. And just like, when did it dawn on you that you could be community led first? Yeah, totally. It took a while. I mean, honestly, like only dawned on me sort of 10 years into building stuff in like 20. 20- 20 really is when I was like, okay, what is my process? And I sort of, I think, figured a lot of this stuff out subconsciously. But one of the fun things about writing a book is you kind of have to like really kind of lift it up from the subconscious and be like, okay, what do I actually do and why? And yeah, that's super key. Like the community for community leads to, you know, the problem that the community has leads to the product that you can build to solve that problem. And then finally, the business, I think, kind of is like the final step. And I think many people kind of, especially the kind of sometimes the VC mentality, I think, is like pick a massive market, right? Like almost come up with the business first and then, you know, from there build, figure out what product you need to ship and then who do you start with, right? Like it's it's sort of a top down. I, w- I would kind of argue that that's kind of like the Keith Raboy way of doing things, right? Which is obviously real estate is broken, right? And it's like, okay, cool. Like real estate is sort of kind of software has not eaten real estate yet. And you know, work sort of down, you know, start from there and then kind of on the macro level and then work down to the micro, like what is the actual, how do we actually start, right? Who do we build for first? What's the MVP? And I just, I just have a totally different way of looking at it, which I would like to think is, is more kind of like the, I don't know, I wouldn't say it better, but has a, I think a higher rate of working um, for, for especially early founders, maybe Keith or Boy, you can kind of do that when you, when you are who you are, you could raise a bunch of capital and build an amazing team and really go after that opportunity. Um, but I think for most people who are not Keith or Boy, right. Um, it's much better to start with a group of people 
and say, okay, I want to solve a problem that they have because I care about this group of people or I have some unique insight or relationship with them. Like, for example, with me, it might be content creators. It might be government creators. Like, I have this really tight-knit community that I can talk to whenever I want and build stuff for them. And I, I'm constantly thinking about it. And luckily, you know, with a product like Gumroad, I can just do this within the context of like building new features for Gumroad. I don't have to start a totally new company. Um, but yeah, you start with the people, then you go to the problems that they have, and then you build a product. And I think if you do that, you should never get to a point where so many people get to, which is I built something and no one wants it, right? Like that's kind of the, one of the classic problems that first time founders have is like, I built a product, uh, and you know, no one is using it. No one is paying for it. Or like I, you know, I launched a product on, got a bunch of downloads, and then a week later, no one's using it anymore. Um, and that, I think all stems from this kind of Keith Boy thinking of like you, you kind of go after something without really talking to a bunch of customers and knowing who you are really building for, right? Um, and I'll, and you know, ideally, you're the first person you're building for. You know, you're a subset of that community. It also makes growth so much easier, right? Because once you know you have kind of product market fit, or so you kind of know who you need to talk to next and who to sell to next. And generally, if these people are part of a community, then they become your salespeople, right? Because if you can really improve their life, it's not that hard to, to say, hey, could you tell other people that this product has improved your life, right? And this is how a lot of products grow. Ultimately, like how all products grow, right? Like why is Tesla a trillion dollar company? It's primarily because I think Elon started with a very small community of basically people in California who wanted electric cars that could only go 200 miles or less, right? Like, or 120 miles or, or whatever in the beginning. And it was like a $120,000 car, right? And then over time, he expanded from, okay, those kinds of people, you know, there's like 600 of them to, you know, sort of prosumer kind of enthusiasts. And now, you know, kind of everyone um, or not even everyone yet, but over over time. And I think it's, it's really important to, I think, think about it kind of like these, as these concentric circles where you want to start with the right, center and then expand outward from there. Otherwise, I, I, I sort of in the book use the example of like competing with Coke or, or McDonald's or something like that, right? Which is you're building for everybody. It's like, oh, we're we're solving real estate. It's like, okay, cool. Who do you, you know, that's, no one's going to feel like you built something for them because, you know, they're one of a billion people. But if you're like, hey, I built this product specifically for this group of people, there's like 700 of you, then every one of those 700 is like perfect, right? You solved my specific problem and you put all this effort into solving my problem, not solving the problem that all these other people have, and you just happen to go to me first because, you know, I was nearby or, or or whatever. So yeah, I think it's really important, and I think the mental model is basically just bottoms up versus top down, right? Like start with the customer and go up from there, and go outward from there, or start kind of from the macro and kind of go go down. And and and, and I just prefer, you know, for myself, kind of like the more bottoms up, try things out, see what sticks, and then kind of grow grow from there. It's a very product-centric thinking, right? <laughs> like you're thinking of the customer. I noticed when we talked the other day and you talked about kind of your investing kind of style and like how you think about things. You're a tinker, right? You love products. You love to like that's your kind of your DNA. And so you you like to invest in other product people very like that's kind of how you think about things. What you're describing feels like it's kind of an evolution of lean startup a little bit because it's like build the community first. And it's like all those people you're, you're get out of the building and you're having the conversations with people. You're actually like making them like part of what you're building mm -hmm. and you know, even before you've built it. And so it's, it's smart because you're building the demand. Yeah. So I, I really like your thought process there. And I think that we've at Latitude, we, I'm probably going to end up raising money for Latitude because I just see a bigger opportunity and probably in my deck, I will have a quote from you 
because we built this amazing community and I didn't know what it was going to become. And now I'm like, this is actually like a bunch of problems that we're solving for these people because they, on the Slack channel, they're like, hey, this stinks. Like I need to, I need to create a yeah. company in the Cayman Islands if I want to receive venture funding from the U.S. because Delaware, there's a, a massive capital gains tax and, and I'm only operating in Brazil. And so it's like, okay, well, why don't we automate the company formation product instead of paying law firms in New York $30,000 to set up this company. So like all of these things naturally flow from just like listening to your customer, right? Which is like the oldest yeah. business strategy, totally. right? Totally. No, I think that's awesome. It's awesome to hear that. And you're, yeah, it's totally right. It's like once you've done the hard work, I think a lot of people think that community stuff is easy and the product stuff is really hard, uh, but actually, or the business stuff maybe, but it's actually the opposite, I find at least. Like if you can build a community of people and like really have your ear to the ground and have them also trust you, right? Like if you built this, these people will all use it, right? Because they already already know you. You already have a relationship with them. It's not like a total stranger coming in and saying, hey, I built this product for people who want this you know, problem solved, right? And so you've done so much of the hard work that actually like closing the loop and like actually building the product. And, 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 and I think you're exactly right too about the whole sort of manual to automation, right? Like you, you kind of, you don't need to solve the problem first. Like you can just do it, you know, you can pay the lawyer in New York, and you can really learn, like, okay, what is that? What does that look like? How much does it cost? What are the inputs? What are the outputs? What are the steps? And then you can sort of automate. You know, at, at first you might just build a company that just wraps around that New York lawyer, right? And you just kind of charge a bundled thing and you automate parts internally. And then over time, you kind of maybe even get, you know, automate that New York lawyer out, right? Um, but I think that's, a, I mean, in so many ways, that's exactly kind of like the minimalist entrepreneur framework, I think. Yeah, it is. And it really uh, struck a chord with me. And let's talk about the investing side uh, a little bit because, you know, I saw that on LinkedIn that you're looking for LPs for your fund and you yourself have invested in a lot of really successful companies. Talk about the skills that you think can set an investor apart from the rest. I mean, there's so many. I mean, you know, as you mentioned, like I kind of have a bias towards like these kind of bottoms up product tinkerer types. And I think the beauty of 2021 is that just there's so many people starting companies that you can probably find your kind of niche, quote unquote, and do super well, right? Even if you miss most of the deals because they don't fit your kind of wheelhouse because there's just so much stuff going on. Um, and I just think it's important to know what your what your kind of wheelhouse even is, right? Um, in terms of marketing and getting in front of the right type, types of founders. Um, and it took me a while to realize, oh yeah, I, like, I didn't, no, not everyone thinks the way that I think about how to start building companies. And that's totally fine. Raboy can get his startups, I can get mine and we'll both do pretty decently well, I think. Um, but yeah, what do I look for? I mean, I, I really index on, as you know, as you mentioned, kind of tinkerers. I really over-index probably on just like people generally. Like if I meet someone who I think is just super smart, it almost doesn't matter what they're building. Like I just get really excited about being able to spend more time with them and learn from them uh, kind of selfishly. You know, Naval actually had a really great quote, which was like angel invest, like the real returns to angel investing are the smartest people in the world condensing years of wisdom and experience into an hour, right? Like it's just this insane arbitrage opportunity basically. Um, and, and I think that's, that's awesome. Uh, so I, I kind of over-index on that. I, I run a company Gumroad. So I spent a lot of time thinking about what's going to get better about running a company like Gumroad, like what's still not automated, what's still manual, what still kind of sucks. Um, and so, you know, for example, I invest in a tool called Causal, which is a lot of financial modeling stuff, kind of Airtable for numbers, um, QA Wolf, which is like a, tries to automate kind of QA testing. Um, 
for startups. Like basically like what, what, yeah, what sucks about running Gumroad? What should I, what don't I have to think about? Just like when I started Gumroad, you know, Braintree was like the default payment processor and it was like two to three week process. You'd have to get a telephone number and a physical address and all these sorts of things. And then Stripe came out and just kind of 10 x you know, that experience, right? And now Stripe is, is obviously killing it. And so always trying to look for those moments. And I literally do this. Like I go into the P&L, you know, monthly P&L of the company and I just say, what are we spending money on that is just a terrible product, right? Like, and there's, by the way, there's a, like, for example, Amex. Amex is one of those where I was like, man, and this was like two or three years ago. I was like, wow, Amex is the worst product that we spent a lot of money on. There's going to be a better service. And then now, you know, there's like ramp and Stripe corporate card and all of these these options. Uh, so it's not that hard, honestly, if you run a company, you kind of have this like super unfair advantage, which is, you know, what you, you know, ultimately startups are the customers of a lot of these new startups. Right. Um, and so if you are a startup CEO, you, you kind of have this lens at the future in a way that may, maybe many other people don't. Um, so that's a big one. And then I have an audience on Twitter and other platforms. So I spent a lot of my time, you know, I was employee number two at Pinterest. So I spent a lot of my time thinking about like, what's the next consumer social, what are the tools that people like creators, content creators will will use to engage with their audiences and monetize them in better ways. I'm spending a lot of time, you know, like everybody else probably in Web3, NFTs, like looking at that. I've invested a little bit, not too much, mostly because I don't, I'm, I'm not convinced yet. Like I, I still need a little bit more to be like, okay, this is the next, you know, big, big thing. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how I think about it. I'm super interested in democratization. You know, everyone is an investor, kind of like, you know, I invest in Republic recently, um, so, you know, look, a, a lot of things, um, I think the the ultimate advantage that everybody has that I think is worth leaning into is like, everyone cares about different things, right? So you should just find out, like, if you're really interested in like payments, then, you know, you should probably invest mostly in payments and FinTech and so kind of the adjacent verticals. If you're really interested in consumer social, you know, like I just happen to be really interested in like product, product design, apps, user experience, like that's where Gumroad thrives. And so I spend, you know, and then in future work, I guess, potentially with the way that we run Gumroad. And so I spend a lot of my time thinking about, okay, what does that look like? You know, Paul Graham has a great saying, which is like, live in the future and build what doesn't exist yet, right? Um, And so just get to a place where you are exploring your interests and doing things kind of on the edge. And generally it's on the edge where things kind of suck, right? Because like the infrastructure has yet to be built and that's where a lot of the opportunities end up being, I think. I recall something I read somewhere, maybe you wrote or... That like you were looking for like a fractional like person to run like some aspect of your business. And I know that you've taken a special interest in the future of work. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, totally. So, you know, the way that I run Gummer today, we have 40, I think it's like 42 people right now. Um, up from like 25 in the beginning of the year. And everyone is, you know, we have people, there's I think 17 countries represented. Um, we have, everyone works basically part-time. So we have this, you know, quarter time head of product, our head of product works 10 hours a week, our uh, head of support, you know, et cetera. Like we have all of these heads, uh, head of design and like everyone works uh, hourly. It's kind of this flexible kind of flexible is kind of the key word, but flexible working model in which people, there's no calendar, there's no shared, you know, schedule, there's no standups, there's no meetings, there's no, or there's very few, I should say, deadlines. Um, and we just have this very kind of flexible, I almost consider it like EC2, you know, what EC2 for, did for sort of scalability and, and dynamic instances, right? Like I'm trying to do with people and engineers and designers and, and other folks. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely think kind of the future of work, 
looks closer to that, right? Um, you know, you see this with crypto and DAOs and all the stuff that people are talking about, how, you know, I think full-time employment is is going to be considered like a very kind of weird idea, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, we're going to look back and be like, wow, your employer was responsible for like your perks, your healthcare, the office, snacks, your lunch and dinner, like all these things. And obviously COVID 2022 has kind of sped that, sped up that transition. You get rid of the office. And, and I think when you get rid of the office, I, I think people are still kind of figuring that piece out. And But like Gumroad, we got rid of our office in 2015. So I'm like six years into into what people are maybe a year or two into. And I know what the future looks like, which is basically once you don't have an office, you start hiring people all over the world. Once you start hiring people all over the world, one, you need all these tools to make that happen. Uh, but two, you realize like, well, we can't really have like a nine to five because what does nine to five mean in a place where people are in all you know different countries? How do you have, like, how do you pick a time for all hands or, and so you move, you start moving to this more asynchronous working model. Like we do, we basically run the whole company, uh, on Slack, GitHub, Notion, uh, Figma, like just all asynchronous kind of tools. Um, and and then, you know, and then, you know, part of that is like, well, when people are working all these different hours, then you kind of want to build a company that supports people who are working 10 hours a week, 40 hours a week, 60 hours a week. You kind of want that flexibility built into it. And uh, and I think that's, Gumroad is, is that's kind of how we work. And, and I would definitely love to invest in more companies that are trying to make that easier. You know, dealremote.com are, are some examples of, of companies that that help with aspects of of that process, we don't use any of them because we had to figure this out before they existed. Um, but I think they're you know they're good examples of kind of this new movement that I think is going to happen over the next decade. So I, obviously, like people processing that, like how can you have like you know people working part time and like all this flexible stuff? Like what about the commitment to the the business? But in your mind, you're just like, hey, listen. This is like working more efficiently. So what would you say to someone that's like, how can you build a, like an amazing company with not everybody like all hands on deck executing? I'm sure you have an answer for that, but that's like, yeah. that would be the first question some would have. Yeah, right. totally. Ultimately, the kind of the caveat here is like Gumroad is 10 years old. We're profitable. We're kind of at a different stage than, you know, maybe if you were starting a company, you do want everybody, you know, every founder to be in the same space in the same office and, and crank on it until you have... I would say probably the product market fit is probably a good point, right? Where you, I think post product market fit, you can probably change quite a few things about the way that you work. You're not kind of sprinting at a very specific uh, target uh, and you're raising money and, and doing all these things that kind of maybe mandate a different, kind of a more accelerated way of working. Certainly the way that we work is not the fastest, right? It's not optimized for pure speed. It's optimized for like speed over like 10 years, right? It's like this yeah. like more sustainable, sustainable thing. Um, but, you know, we just redesigned Gumroad. We changed everything about us. We're redesigning the whole product. We did this all without meetings, without full-time employees. I just believe that if you hire really, really well, then, yeah, you can kind of just give people a roadmap and they'll execute against it pretty darn well. And I think if the work is exciting, and obviously there's, you know, people are still getting paid to work, um, you know, people will kind of be incentivized to to, to do the work and, self-regulate that. And if not, I can always hire more people. Um, and I found that, it, you know, like I was honestly like skeptical of this way of working, but I just looked at myself and I said, look, I wrote a book. I have a fund. I still think I'm a great CEO for Gumroad. I don't think I'm worse off. And so if I can do these three things, like why, who am I to say that my employees can't also manage and juggle, you know, multiple, multiple things. And obviously you have up until maybe yesterday, the day before Jack Dorsey with Square and Twitter, 
um, obviously, how do you run, you know, these those two companies, like, how do you run, you know, like Elon runs SpaceX and Tesla and who, who knows what else. And I, I think a lot of it just comes to the fact that, like, you shouldn't be bottlenecked on your time, right? Like, if that is truly the bottleneck for your company's success, I think something is wrong, right? Like, you need uh, to delegate better. You need to trust your team better. You need executives. Um, you need more automation. Maybe you need to outsource, right? Like, you just are doing too much yourself, um, or, or the company is doing too much. Maybe you can just pay Stripe to do it instead, and it's worth the kind of the the 05 percent or whatever for them to deal with the with the headache than than for you or your team to. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I you know, ultimately it's still an experiment. We're still trying to figure it figure it out, but it seems to be working pretty well for for Gumroad, and and I think like it's kind of a bet also just that on in the future it will make us more competitive because I think recruiting is going to get harder and harder. We can't compete with fang or manga or whatever they're called now on comp uh, and so we have to compete in a different way right and the way that we have decided to do that is compete on flexibility um and autonomy and and hire folks who are really interested and excited about coming in working on a product getting paid to work on that product but then not having to think about that product you know other times of the week or thinking about all hands or retreats or all these social aspects associated working we're mostly looking for people who just want to be productive and that's generally what I want to do. Like, I love building stuff. I love tinkering. I love ideating. I love writing. Um, but I don't love sitting in meetings all the time about those sorts of things. Like, I think the best work happens kind of almost in isolation. And then you come together, get some feedback, and then go back into isolation, right? And so I think that, you know, I'm just trying to model my company off of that. And, and I've told the team and I've told everybody else, look, like, this may not work. But the only way we're going to show the world that this does work or doesn't work is to kind of run the experiment for a couple of years, right? And so I've kind of told, you know, I'm like committed to this way of working, even if the data is like, wow, this doesn't work, we're going to do it for at least another couple of years to make sure. And, you know, I'll probably write an article. I mean, the nice thing about the way that I like to operate is that like everything is, it's hard to really have failures in this way, right? Because even if it doesn't work, like reflecting on my failure to build a million dollar company, I can, I can write a an article about it and people will be interested in the fact that it didn't work. And so there's always some positive, you know, kind of, uh, output, you know, that, that comes out of this thing. And, and even if that is just like, wow, a thousand companies who would have tried this don't have to, because they can, they can see all these things. And, you know, like you mentioned, like people want that, right? Like ultimately building in public is teaching in public and that requires learning and learning requires trial and error. Right. And ultimately that's why people are reading in the first place is because they want to avoid trial and error. They want to skip you know, over the mistakes that you made. Um, that's why generally people, I think, are spending time on the internet and on Twitter, et cetera. So if you can do that, you know, then then I think it's still it's still a win. You mentioned compensation, and my next question is around that because I've battled with this. We have you know people in seven or eight countries. We have people in the U.S. Clearly, the salaries are much different in the U.S. than they are in Brazil. What is your position, and how do you figure that out? Yeah. Uh, so our position today is that we pay everybody in the world effectively the same. Obviously, different you know different jobs, different titles. But if you're at the same job, same same level, it doesn't matter where you are. Like no location based pay. So if you're in San Francisco, or New York, or Thailand, or Brazil, or India, or wherever else, like we're paying you. Let's say for an for a engineer, I think it starts at a hundred dollars an hour, um, which is maybe not considered that great if you're in San Francisco considered ridiculously amazing if you're in other parts of the world, right? And so, and I did that just because I felt, one, we can, 
right? We had the bandwidth to, like there are many companies who might want to operate this way, but it's not really feasible. Like you would, you know, it would basically be Facebook saying, okay, we're going to spend another $400 million a year for no reason. All these people already work for us. Um, so, you know, we have an advantage in that we're small and so we can kind of try out these things and move into the future a little bit sooner. Um, but that's what we do. We, uh, I think it's the most fair, honestly. Like I, I, I think of it as kind of living in the future and building what doesn't exist yet, right? It's like, I think at some point, I hope that the world is equalized in this way in which it doesn't benefit you to move to the US. It doesn't benefit you to work for a US company. That would be better for the 7 billion people on planet Earth. Um, we're not there yet. We probably won't be there for a little while, but at least beacons of light like Gumroad or Basecamp or some of these other things can can show the world what that future may look like. Um, and I also think it's it's just important for hiring. Like ultimately, we can afford to pay people this well because we're just super small and Gumroad is not looking to grow, you know, to double every year and have hundreds of employees, right? We're looking for 50 or 75 employees or part-time employees. And that means that we can pay ludicrously well because we're never, you know, we're really looking for the best of the best and we can only have so many of them. And I think that like a, I think there's some quote that's like a, you know, a, 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 a really good lawyer is expensive. A, a, a bad lawyer is even more expensive, right? Like in the sense that like, sure, they're, they're cheaper on the short term, but will cost you more in the long term. And I think it's the same with basically anybody you hire. And so I'm just optimized for how do I hire the best 10, 15 engineers and that means paying them a lot more than maybe the, the market would pay them in Germany, for example, um, or London. We have like phenomenal people in Europe, which I have learned and was surprised like how low the so the compensation can be in those in those places. Um, and I'm also just interested that you know I think the dynamic is going to get very compelling when governments have to figure out what to do about this, right? Because effectively, like Gumroad is taking advantage of the UK's healthcare system because the reason that some of these people can can work at Gumroad is because they don't have to think about healthcare and it makes basically we don't have to pay for it, right? And so it's going to be very interesting. I think the kind of second order, third order effects of, you know, all of a sudden you have millions of people who are like working remote and moving to, you know, Puerto Rico and the Cayman Islands. And like, it's going to get really, really, and obviously with crypto and all these things happening too, like I think it's going to be a very turbulent, you know, 10 years. And, and I think, but I think it's great. I think, effect, I think Balaji said this, which is basically countries and cities have to compete like countries, or, or sorry, like like corporations had to, right? Uh, which I think is going to be kind of a net net positive for the end customer, you know, the citizen. Yeah, I mean, it is a, a kind of a fascinating thing that, first of all, I tend to side with you on the compensation. We've thought about that, and that's definitely my goal. I think we need to figure out what, what it is to, to get there because hmm. you start one way, you hire someone, low, you know, in a certain market, and then you you realize that it's a big world out there, right? And like, it seems so arbitrary where you're like, oh, we have to hire someone from this like 15 mile radius of where we live. We're like the brightest minds are spread out across the world yeah. and the caliber of people. It sounds to me, though, like you're you know, you mentioned like no offsides and like that. Um, what about the human touch of, of things? And I know that you're more focused on like product engineering and there's not that they're not human. I don't want to be, <laughs> but there's a there's a more of a stronger introvert, async kind of uh, culture in engineering, right? That's something that is evidenced in terms of across the board. How do you think about actually like building relationships? And I do believe that you can build relationships digitally and through this kind of. We've seen it happen. I, I've got. I'm about to meet everybody in Brazil next week. 
<laughs> and the whole team, I've met maybe half of them or, or more, less than half of them in person. And I feel like I know them really well, right? Because we've working together for so long. Yeah. So but what are your thoughts in terms of just like actually spending time and building relationships outside of this like time box of like, okay, we're executing this. You have 10 hours that you're dedicated to this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so how do you, how do you think social aspects play uh, a part in this, in this relationship building? Yeah, totally. And well, just one thing to add to the last point too, is we share all the salaries or all the kind of hourly rates uh, publicly within the company. So everyone knows how much everybody else is making, um, which is another thing that I do to kind of just save me time, right? Because all of a sudden it's these conversations and back and forth that I don't have to have, or maybe people are talking within, you know, amongst themselves, right? It's just this dramatic thing. How much do you make, you know? Um now everyone just gets to have that conversation. And if they want to bring it up to me, then I can say, look, this is what everyone's making. Like, if you think you should get paid more, like, yeah, like go talk to them, come up with something. And, you know, you have the same data that I have access to. Like, it's not like I have any, any secrets here. I'm happy to pay you more if you think it makes sense. And it turns out generally people don't ask for that. Actually, no one has yet because I'm very transparent and I kind of, it forces me to kind of justify my decisions, you know, in a, in a, in a way. Um, the human touch thing is actually a really interesting one. I think, we don't really know the answer to this. I think, you know, we're still figuring it out. Um, I find that I don't need it so much. I find that like most of my relationships are almost already all, like via text or audio. Um, and it seems to work fine. Uh, and I've asked people in the company actually like, Hey, does anyone want to do like one time we did a zoom? I was like, Hey, if anyone, I'm going to be co-working in zoom, like anyone can just join in and, you know, we can just like talk while we all work together. And it was just, I think maybe because it was like self-selected on who we hired initially, but it was just weird, honestly. It was like, why why are we doing this? We all like working more than we like talking. We're all kind of socially awkward. <laughs> and so we don't really need this. I do think like retreats are great. I, I, I think of it kind of like, at least my prediction is going to be kind of like a barbell where you have like super async writing only kind of culture and then maybe every six months or year or three months or something like that, you have like a very high fidelity, ideally in person, uh, I think, uh, sort of meetup or what have you, where you just hang out and there's like no work being done, right? It's just fun. It's just hanging out. Uh, it's just getting to know each other. And I think that's kind of where, like I've tried the kind of co-working retreats and like it's kind of the worst of both worlds. I think I think you'll either have like, we're just working and, and the way we work is like this. And then we're just playing in the way that we play is kind of like this. And I guess my guess would be that the playing stuff would be fully opt-in, right? Like you could work at Gumroad, but you don't have to participate in any of these things. I might do something like next year, I pick a location. I'm going to be there for a week. People can fly in. We'll pay for you to fly in if you want, but it's totally optional. And there'll be like a couple dinners and a couple events. And, you know, besides that, we'll just, you know, we'll just do whatever we want. And there's no pressure uh, or, or what have you. Um, I thought about stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in like, there are friends, there's coworkers and there's amazing coworkers that may not be good friends. And there may be good friends. I mean, I would never want to work with ever. Uh, and maybe those are just different groups. Like that's kind of the, one of the parts of the experiment that I'm running is that like, it's not like I dislike the people I work with, like they're amazing. Um, but I think I'm like optimized when I hire people, I'm optimized for a very different set of things than if I'm trying to make a new friend. And so maybe they're just kind of Different. I also think that, you know, we're hiring people at a different life stage. Like if you're working remote async, it's probably not great for like a new grad, right? Or an intern where you're really like trying to learn, trying to network. You don't, you're trying to find your feet. You're trying to learn all the industry process. Like I would say that those people should go work at Stripe or Facebook or a company that has the infrastructure and like the orientation to train these people. 
But I think, you know, most of our folks are like senior or like they've been doing it for five to 10 years. They have a family, kids. They're probably not looking for, oh, I have to like go to this retreat and have to like organize a babysitter and do this and that. They're like, they're kind of past that point in their life. So I think that's another thing is that my guess is like certain companies will be for almost certain people at certain life stages, right? It's probably not a coincidence that like when I started Gumroad at 19, I wanted a very specific kind of culture. And now that I'm 29, like I want a different kind of culture. And I don't live in San Francisco anymore. And I have, I got married. Like my sort of desires have changed. And my, you know, like I think that you'll just kind of end up attracting, you know, when I'm 40, like it's probably, you know, government will look different if I'm working on it at all. The people I work with will look different. Like these things will just kind of change. Um, or it'll be like, no, government shouldn't change. And then I just have to fire myself, find somebody new, and government stays for that kind of person, right? Like I think these are all valid potential paths for the future. Yeah, I think that there's, it's unwritten, right? But I, the, it's funny because I do personal reflection about like my philosophy as CEO of my last company and like the whole remote idea or like flex work. And I was like pretty adamant about everybody being together. And then, you know, I ended up moving back to the US and I wanted to still have a foot in Latin America, but I was wanting to live here and be close to the family. And so I knew that I have to build a remote company from the very beginning. And then the pandemic hit and then it became like a natural thing. But I think a lot about the, the dynamic of having quarterly offsites as like a, a great replacement and a, a great opportunity to build relationships with people in a fun environment. So we're, we're testing that next week. Um, <laughs> it'll be a little bit more work related just because it's kind of a recap and planning for the next year, mm-hmm. but we'll, we'll, we'll mix in some fun stuff. So I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah. But, but I, I think that if you think of like the money you save on an office oh, man. and you're like budget 20 grand or whatever, like a quarter, to like a blowout, like an amazing, you know, 10 grand to a great like location in some exotic place. You know, we're going to this place in Brazil. It's like, it's gorgeous. Like oh, yeah. we're, we're going to have a big old house and we're all going to kind of hang out and, and cook together. And it'll be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out. But I'm definitely been converted. Do you know a guy by the name of Alex Torrenegra? No, I don't actually. You should meet Alex. Alex has been on the podcast. He's a longtime friend. He's really, really into remote work. He's been doing remote work for like 15 years or 10, 15 years. And he has some very similar philosophies that you have in terms of like salaries, paying, you know, he's been doing this for a really long time. I'm going to introduce you to him. I think he's, um, he's building a really cool kind of future of work company that I think you'll, I think you'll dig. Um, Want to just ask you kind of, as we close out, you know, you faced a lot of challenges growing your business before. How do you think founders can avoid sacrificing profitability for scale? Because that's one one aspect of the book that you, you talk about, which is really this sustainable. And I mean, I'm asking this despite also investing in a lot of venture back companies. And, you know, I hope that like, you know, Andreessen or Sequoia, like, you know, lead the round next and it, mm-hmm. you know, you, you push the growth and it, it grows because it increases the value of my investment. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's, there's not one way of doing things. Yeah. And the blitz scaling is definitely like a, a path. But it seems like you've adapted this path that's more, you know, kind of long-term sustainability. Um, Talk a little bit more about how you advise founders should build the right roadmap for building businesses that go the distance. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's nothing wrong. And certainly I do the same thing. Like I invest in startups and I want Sequoia and Andreessen to to co-lead the next round of the startup together um, and focus on growth. Um, But I I think the key lesson is, you know, Profitability, and you don't need a lot of profitability. I mean, the great thing about profit is it's kind of like oxygen, right? Like you, you, you just need enough um, to stay alive, and then you can stay alive forever. You don't need more than that, really. Um, 
And I just think it's, it's just leverage, right? Ultimately, a lot of doing more with less is just about leverage. And one of the most powerful things in leverage, like if, even if you do decide to raise money, is to say, we don't need you, right? We want you. Obviously, we're having a conversation with you, but we don't need you. We can always walk away. We can always bootstrap this business. We have been, we're kind of default alive, as Paul Graham says. And I just think it's really important. I think it gives you a lot of confidence to be able to take risks. I think risk-taking is kind of oxymoronic because actually, I think to be in the best place to take risks, you want a safety net. You want to be able to take the risk and know that you're not putting your entire company or certainly your life on the line, right? Um, I think that's pretty important. It's kind of like doing a tightrope walk, like, Generally, it's risky. It's also not doesn't work. Like you, you know, you, you're you're very aware of of the risk in that in that way. And so, yeah, I think you want to mitigate in that way. And and yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with with scale. But I always I always am trying to be mindful of like if this doesn't work, like what's my plan B, right? Uh, what you know is my business, you know, do the economics work so that if this thing doesn't work, you know, I can downsize or I can do you know, like government had to do and get the profitable. Because ultimately, like, I think the important thing is to be able to make your own decisions on your own timescale, right? And one of the issues potentially with raising money is if you defer those questions, you know, two or three, four years into the future, which I, as a first-time founder, did with Gumroad, when, you know, things don't work and you can't put, to, put together the next round, uh, all of a sudden, you're like, wow, I have three months to make this decision. I have two months to make this decision. I have one week. And like, generally, I think you make worse decisions that way, right? Well, when you start thinking about the short term, I think one of the great things about venture is it allows you to think over the long term instead of the short term. But I think that you know can come up the other way around too, which is you, you rely on venture and it gets you to not think about certain really important things. And all of a sudden, you're three months away from running out of money and you haven't actually thought about those things because you didn't have to. And then you're in a really tricky place. So I think even if you do decide to raise money, I think it's just important to have like a really good grasp on like the fundamentals of the business um, and make sure that you're trending to those things, uh, even though you may not fully prioritize it yet. Right. Um, So I think that's that's important. And and, uh, it works. I mean, like Facebook, everyone thought Facebook was, you know, was there's no way in hell they were going to figure out mobile advertising or whatever. Right. And it obviously worked out for Facebook. They're a trillion dollar company. Uber, people thought there was no way Uber was going to make it. Self-driving cars got pushed out. They were going to not work. Pandemic, they seemed to work. Airbnb seemed to work. Uh, you know, Amazon, people, you know, was unprofitable for, for you know, how, how many years. And so I do think it works, right? But I think it probably works because they've always been really diligent about, even though they've been focused on growth, they've always been diligent about, okay, well, what's the path? Like, if you think about like a tree, we're, go- we're taking this growth path, but we know that, you know, we can get back to this, and this is the this is the way that we we can get back to this within the time horizon that you know we need to. Um, and my guess is they do have those, and I think as a first time founder, you don't have those because all you see is you know raise a bunch of money, grow as fast as possible, keep doing that. Eventually, you'll have the team and everything. You'll figure everything out. Um, but that's kind of survivorship bias, right? Like there are a lot of people who thought like that that you know end up ended up just exploding. And never making it anywhere, right? Like Lytro or Juicero or I don't know some of these these stories or Theranos or whatever, right? Theranos was probably also kind of like we'll figure this out at some point. Like we just need to keep this, you know, doubling down, and eventually the science and technology will be there. Like or we work or or whatever, right? And so um, yeah, I think it's just important to to, to be aware of, of you know ultimately your your business will be valued based on how profitable it is. Like that is ultimately like the calculus that that happens, it just may happen like 30 years out from now, right? But you do want to think about that being the goal. Um, Because ultimately it is. Like that's, 
you know, what a business is. It, it is a profit-driven machine at, at some point. I think that the current state of affairs in Latin America is there's so much money sloshing around that first-time entrepreneurs that are able to raise money and, you know, get hot deals going, this is not at front center because maybe they haven't seen a cycle or, mm-hmm. and so it's something, it's a good reminder uh, unit economics are important, understanding you know, how the business is going to grow in a, a sustainable way. When the tide goes out, you want to make sure that. Yes, exactly. When the tide goes out, <laughs> you can see who's swimming naked, as, as Warren Buffett says. Um, l- listen, where can people find you? Where can they find the book? Uh, just give a quick little shout out for everybody so they, they know more about you and yeah. uh, how, how they can get in touch. Yeah, I mean, the best way is to go to my Twitter account at S. HL, and that has a link to my book, link to reflecting on my failure to build a billion dollar company, and uh, and my personal website, which has a link to all my other essays and and book and some paintings on Instagram, another hobby of mine. Um, yeah, so that's kind of a good jumping off point. Thank you, man. Uh, yeah, pick up the book, The Minimalist Entrepreneur. It's on Amazon. It's pretty pretty sweet. Probably buy it on your website too. But um, yeah, I appreciate you making the time, man. It's a, it's a fun conversation. Really like what you're doing taken a few pages out of your book, literally, uh, and, and adapted them. And as one author to another, uh, it's really cool to see, uh, you know, to see that this book come out. I remember you told me, you're like, Hey, I'm writing a book. And I'm like, Oh, I just wrote a book too. And then, you know, now we, we, we both have a book out. So it's, uh, it's it's really cool, man. Thank you. Yeah. Congrats as well. And, uh, yeah, talk, talk soon. Sounds good. Cool. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Sahil Lavingia, founder of Gumroad and author of The Minimalist Entrepreneur. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.